when others called it a hoax. We didn't waver when they covered up and lied for Trump and others. We stuck to the facts through COVID, corruption, and a coup to a war in Ukraine. At Narrative, we've been telling you the truth about Putin and Xi since 2016. Narrative, it's where truth lives. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live on a Tuesday night at 7 p.m. on the East Coast, 4 p.m. on the West Coast. And Igor Sushko, I think I'm saying the name correctly, is our guest tonight. Igor, it's good to have you here. Thank you for joining us on the show. Zev, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And of course, Eric Garland is with us, a regular brilliant mind who's here to translate everything into regular speak for everybody. Eric, it's nice to have you back on the show. I uh, hope you're well today. The only problem I have is I feel like I need to have a like studio here that matches the grandeur of the opening sequence, of the opening titles. The same They're, way it, sometimes, it, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like we're gonna con- we were conquering the world. I've got squishmallows in the background here. I mean, so yeah, we can work on all that. But you know, the reality of it is, the content of the show is so important and so. Uh, vital that it actually does match the opening, even with whatever look of a studio we might have. And we, we're not as comfortable as Igor is out there in the nice weather where he is outside, although it would be quite hot out there today. But let's get into the show. So um, Igor is here because of a, a remarkable set of letters. Now, they weren't, are they, they actual letters? Are they physical letters? Or are they things that showed up on someone's DM? Sorry? Emails. Emails, okay. That originate from within inside the FSB. And the FSB is notoriously the, uh, well, how would you describe the FSB, Igor? What would you say about them? It's the uh, organization that essentially inherited uh, the vast majority of the KGB operations. So the KGB sort of went away with the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think FSB officially was established in '95. But people like to compare it to as an analog to something like the FBI, but it misses a lot of new ones when you do that because <laughs> Quite the <a> FSB, <laughs> well, even in terms of the scope of operations, right? The FSB is not a domestic intelligence agency inside Russia. They do a lot abroad as well. So it's sort of like a big hybrid comprising, you know, the intersection I think is going to be among whatever, however many dozen intelligence agencies we have in the United States, the FSB is going to stow into a, probably all of those kinds of operations. So almost like the way. DNI, that sort of that area of intelligence. So the just, just real quickly, yeah. I just to talk more about the culture mm-hmm. of three big agencies in Russia. You've got the GRU, the GRU, the military intelligence that has a very you know militaristic culture um right these are uniformed officers then the svr is more the foreign directorate of the fsb has a a very large and complicated billet these three all have very different cultures right and they sometimes step on each other's toes would that be fair to say yeah so i'm definitely i'm not an expert at this stuff right i've never been (laughs) a part of any of these organizations so you know to my understanding right there's clearly a lot of animosity 
that is palpable between the FSB and the GRU. And I think that is something that probably is pretty common among various intel agencies, if you look at even the Western countries. Because this is uh, your day job. But this is your, your day job. And this is why you don't necessarily know that much about all these things. I mean, you drive <laughs> fast cars for a living. And tell us a little way bit about... Way cooler day job. <laughs> way cooler than any of us, for sure. Um, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about how a race car driver who's an American race car driver, but who was racing in Japan, how you came to encounter all these letters from an FSB analyst inside Russia, inside the Kremlin. Yeah, it's, I feel like I've lived, uh, I've had definitely several distinct chapters in my life. But um, motorsports is something that I aspired uh, to be involved in as a small kid when I was growing up in Japan. Specifically racing in a Nissan GTR, which is what that car is, in Super GT, which is what that series is, was my childhood dream as I was growing up in Japan in elementary school. How fast um, does that go, by the way, just as a matter of curiosity? What's the fastest speed on those things? Uh, so it's a GT3 race car. It depends on the strength length of the straightaway. Like Fuji Speedway in Japan, it would get up to probably one, close to 180 Wow. Okay. Pretty miles quick. an hour. I think it should approach 300 kilometers there. So you're not averse to risk. <laughs> but uh, tell us a little bit about how you got the letters then. So uh, with regards to the FSB letters, mm -hmm. It is something that came about really, really by chance. I was born in Kiev. I was born in Ukraine. I grew up in Kiev, Germany, Japan, and the United States. And of course, I have family in Ukraine, and it is the country of my birth. And like everybody else, I was just absolutely shocked and astounded by this nonsensical invasion that started on the 24th of February. And given that I am here in the United States and as a result of various circumstances, it's not even a viable possibility for me to be going to Ukraine physically to try to help because of my other obligations. I was trying to just really think and figure out what I could do to help on an individual level. And I've never been active on Twitter before. I've had an account for a long time, but never did anything with it. And I had a lot of thoughts and I began to write some of them on Twitter. And I think the big one that was quite impactful and at least uh, provided a little bit of traction in terms of exposure was my own writing about how the West must come to grips that the Rubicon has been already crossed long ago. And this is not a war between Russia and Ukraine. And that is a war between that Putin is waging against the entire civilized world. So I wrote that on March 1st and had probably 100, 150 followers that just, you know, my friends, when you set up an account, right? And I shared that as a reply to one of Gary Kasparov's very thematic tweets that he had posted. And next thing you know, it ended up getting a, quite a bit of attention and interaction between Kasparov's readers on my thread. And that, I think, took me to, within just a matter of days, to about 800 followers. So I continued to just try to share some insights into where I saw my role in this situation was to try to share some insights into what is actually happening inside Russia, what it's like. Like the, one of the things I initially posted, that was an audio recording from inside a classroom in Russia. This was end of... February, maybe even. 
somebody had secretly recorded an audio inside a classroom that sounded like maybe late elementary school, early middle school. And the teacher was basically threatening the kids that they were gonna be arrested and thrown into jail or prison uh, with no name recorded anywhere if they talk about the war. So that was happening very early on inside Russian schools, right? This is uh, the definition of the totalitarian system. And I thought those kind of things the West must know about to understand how Russian society actually functions because it's all caricatures, Mm -hmm. right? You think vodka and pelmeni. So it was uh, extremely just really by chance. I stumbled onto this very long post in Russian on Facebook that Vladimir Sechkin had made March 4th, might have been March 5th. The email was dated March 4th and I read it and it was really in line with what I was trying to already do from that perspective of trying to expose what's going on inside Russia. And that was that first FSB letter from the mall uh, inside the FSB Vladimir Sechkin's source. We are going to go to all the rest of this in just a second. I'm going to take a very quick commercial break. Hey, everybody, it's Zev Shalev here. It's becoming more and more expensive to buy groceries. And if you, like me, are trying to get all the nutrients and vitamins you need while still balancing your budget, it's become nearly impossible to get all the nutrients you need from food alone, especially on a budget. That's why I did the 30-day Athletic Greens Challenge in April. The plan was simple. Take the AG1 supplement throughout April and track any increases in energy levels, overall well-being, and vitality. And if my immune system felt boosted, I did it throughout April, and I have to say, I feel terrific every day taking it. I still take it every day after the 30-day challenge was over. And the biggest fear that people have about green drinks is the taste. And I have to tell you that even taking a daily, drinking this drink every day, the drink tastes great every time. It's refreshing and tastes a little bit like a tropical drink. AG1 is engineered to provide all the right nutrients at just the right time. Whether you want increased energy or improved muscle recovery, they've got it covered. And because they care about your wallets too, AG1 will only cost you around three bucks a day. To make it easy for you, Athletic Greens is also going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash narrative. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash narrative. That's the way we spell narrative, N-A-R-A-T-I-V, to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And remember to go visit that site if you want all those free goodies attached to your order. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash narrative, N-A-R-A-T-I-V. And we're back live with Igor Sushko and Eric Garland. Um, We just found out about how you got those letters and did you accidentally stumbled upon them. And let's show everyone the graphic here showing you and where you fit into this chain of letters. So Wind of Change is the name that is the mole, right? Is the FSB analyst or inside the FSB who wrote the initial letters. And then he was having a conversation with this guy, Vladimir Osechkin, who is a human rights activist, doesn't live in Russia, but is very familiar with sort of FSB activity because of his human rights work. And it's his letters that you, his posts that you encountered, and then you decided to translate it from there. Is that a correct uh, description of how all this uh, happened? Yes. I think one thing that Wind of Change would take lots of issue with this specific graphic yes. is the Ukrainian colors. Ah. Right? Wind of Change is a Russian patriot. 
Okay. And I think from that perspective, right, there's nothing wrong with people loving their own country and wanting the best for their own country. Well, so, yeah, uh, it was your logo, but I might have misunderstood how it was used. But nevertheless, sure. that is the chain for Tistov, possession of these of the knowledge about these letters. And so the letters are quite stunning. I mean, they are, each one of them is more explosive than the next, but it sort of begins by analyzing the beginning stages of the Ukrainian war, where things were not looking good at all for Russia in those first, not, they're not looking good now either, of course, but um, back then it was a, the idea of a blitzkrieg and a three-day invasion of Ukraine had been floated as being the what they were going to do. It was vastly unsuccessful. They just were not able to achieve that. And so, and almost immediately they started blaming everyone inside the FSB or within the architecture, in the, uh, in the Kremlin. Everyone was blaming everyone else for the supposed failure. So that letter was the first one you translated, and it's the first one that, that came out. We're going to go into it in a little bit more detail, but tell us a little bit about that first letter and how it was received. It was uh, quite dramatic. It's, I didn't know what to expect when I read it in Russian, knowing immediately that I must translate it into English as soon as possible and publish it. The content is exactly what the Western public and the Western politicians needed. It filled that very big blind spot that the Western public had at the time and for many years and decades of the past about the real Russia under Putin. And so I knew it would be big from that perspective, but it was still exceeded obviously all expectations. Uh, one of the first people that decided to really endorse it was Alexander Vimen. He retweeted it telling everybody that they must go read this. It went, I mean, it took the entire world by storm. So it just on Twitter. Yeah. And it was translated into probably a dozen languages really quickly. And current and former diplomats, ambassadors, current and former parliamentarians from all over the West and like even Japan were sharing and discussing this information. Yeah. So that first translation that partnered very within a matter of days, about 30 million impressions on Twitter. Wow, it's a lot of impressions. I'm going to read uh, some of this. I can't read the whole letter because it's quite long, but let me read some of it. And, uh, you know, you guys can give us your analysis afterwards. It says here, I've hardly slept all these days at work at almost all times. I have brain fog, maybe from overworking, but I feel like I'm in a surreal world. The Pandora's box is open. A real global horror will begin by the summer. Global famine is inevitable. Russia and Ukraine with the main supplies of grain to the world. This year's harvest will be smaller and logistical problems will result in a catastrophe. You say, and it's your commentary here, you disagree with all of that, so we'll talk about that in a second. He goes on to say, I can't say what guided those in charge to decide to proceed with the execution of this operation, but now they are methodically blaming us, FSB. We are being scolded for our analysis. Recently, we have been increasingly pressured to prepare more reports. All of these political consultants and politicians and that powers that be are causing chaos. Most importantly, no one knew that there will be such a war. It was concealed from everyone. For example, you're being asked to analyze various outcomes and consequences of a meteorite attack. Your commentary again, this is referring to most likely the West sanctions. 
And he goes on to say, you research the mode of attack and you're being told that it's just a hypothetical and not to stress on the details. So you understand that the report is only intended as a checkbox and the conclusions of the analysis must be positive for Russia. Otherwise, you basically get interrogated for not doing good work. So you have to write that. We all have necessary measures available to nullify the effect of a given type of attack. We are completely overworked, but then it turns out that the hypothetical has turned into reality, and the analysis we've done on the hypothetical is total trash. We have no answer to the sanctions because of this. No one knew there'd be such a war, so no one was prepared for these sanctions. It's the flip side of the secrecy. Since everyone was kept in the dark, how could we prepare for it? I mean, that is pretty stunning to hear true about the way the FSB was thinking. That's pretty stunning. Go ahead, Eric. Well, speaking as an intelligence analyst um, who is a sadomasochist who apparently chose this profession because I like telling people things they absolutely do not want to hear and upset. Or as I like to say, I've been thrown out of more boardrooms than you've <laughs> probably ever been in. This is a description of a classic dynamic in a totalitarian uh, system where there are people going through the motions of doing intelligence analysis especially if that regime is under pressure. There's, their whole method is just abusing anybody that's telling an uncomfortable truth, which is what intelligence is about, is uncomfortable truths. That's why we do it, even though it you know, doesn't always make us the most popular. Um, but it's really necessary to be honest with yourself as a nation and as leaders making decisions. So if you stop doing the uncomfortable truth part, then you become a checkbox. But the reality is when you're doing things like invading other people's countries, it can all end in tears. It's one of the greatest risks uh, leaders take when they don't listen to their analysts and they box out any kind of negative scenario. We have a tool called uh, ACH, Alternative Competing Hypotheses. Yeah. So the world could turn out all a bunch of different ways and we look for the, the sentinel events that would indicate that one scenario is going to come out over another. If all of your scenarios are good, good, great, great, awesome, awesome, everyone gets laid, yeah. If that's the only set of yeah. scenarios you have and not our central bank is sanctioned, we yeah. can't do currency transfers, we, you know, famine, you know, dragon attack. If you don't have those in there, you're all, and, you know, the intelligence suggests a negative outcome and you risk being beaten with hoses. Yeah. I'm talking about it. Well, I mean, it certainly seems the culture there, right? I mean, it seems like he's describing a culture where you get punished if you do a bad scenario. So, of course, you're not going to do bad scenarios. Uh, you know, you're, it makes sense that you're going to issue good scenarios. And if you don't think it's actually going to happen because you think it's all hypothetical, then you think there's no problem in giving the good scenario up, up to the leadership. And in this case, all the way to Putin, which would have started this war. Yeah, and, and it's even worse than just that, because uh, with regards to the assessments becoming total fantasies when it reaches the top, especially... Uh, the wind of change in some of the other emails in the letters, he discusses this process specifically, how every layer, as the reports go up from the analysts mm. up the chain, they get more and more fantastical and colored. Mm. Yeah, sound sounds great. about right. That's and so by the time it actually reaches the Kremlin, it's there's no nothing real in there. Mm. So they actually, he provided one concrete example of... Uh, it was a video of the U.S. military, video of some kind of military action by the U.S. military, either in Afghanistan or Iraq. Somebody in Ukraine, Russian soldier, yeah. Russian officer, you took that video, removed the audio, 
and sent it up to the Kremlin through the chain as if it's what the Russians are doing in Ukraine, showing their success to the Kremlin. Yeah, I have that here, He's actually. It's a, provided that example. Yeah, this is an actual example. This is an interesting slide because it goes through Putin's brain as well. But he says, when, for example, generals are demanded to provide rapid reports on victories and they, chain of command, continue to pass on the order for the real report downstream while screaming and cursing until finally some sergeant agrees to make up the report in exchange for military leave, after which he takes a video of the American work in Afghanistan he raises the sound and hands it off up the chain of command and the recipient hands it off higher and so on until it reaches the tables of the command who completely believe the report and they hand it off to Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, who then hands it off to Putin. So you have a, an absolute concrete example there of wild, wild misinformation going all the way to the top of the Kremlin as a predicate for war. It's kind of it's kind of stunning. I mean, I mean this sounds like uh, mental instability caused by pressure because are we to believe that this lifetime KGB spy like Putin, a military guy like Shogu, wouldn't recognize that Americans um, drive different armored personnel carriers than Russians do and not go, oh, that's not ours? Like, was there that scene in Oliver Stone's documentary where that actually they, I can't remember what it was, but it was American footage or some other footage that Putin was showing off to Oliver Stone as being the success of the Russian military, but it was actually. Americans or, or something else. It was, the, it was the movie Gettysburg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say it's a video game, but I thought I'm sure a video game would get past it. Uh, sir, this is Space Invaders. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, no, we took them out. Um, it's quite oh. possible. Actually, we could make a quick segue right into this. Is a there's a distinct cultural difference with like the former Soviet countries, not just Russia, but it's going to be much more pronounced in Russia than other former Soviet countries. With the West, with the West, uh, obviously stereotype, but there's a lot of truth to it. Pathological lying is something that is very much a part of the culture in the former Soviet. Right, 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 right. So that is why just today, or May 9th, uh, there was a concert that was showing on Russia One channel. Yeah. So chief, like the main propaganda channel in oh, Russia. Yeah. They were playing a concert, some girl was singing, in the background, they were showing photos of allegedly Soviet heroes from World War II. Yeah. And somebody literally took a photo of Bonnie and Clyde from Wikipedia and stuck it in that slideshow. <laughs> it was playing in the background of this uh, day parade concert. As a protest or what was that? I think it was somebody was just, it, the simplest explanation is the best. Somebody was said, hey, you got to find me a picture of like a couple that are World War II Soviet heroes. And some intern went in line and just took, took one that's black and white that happened to be Bonnie and Clyde, right? That is like the Russian system in a nutshell, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think you're right there. That's interesting. Um, let's keep looking at the slide. It is an interesting slide, and I think it's worthy of some other comments here, because they're going to, this is from the second letter, so we might be skipping around a little bit here, but it's worth our time. Um, this is how he describes, this is the FSB mole, the analyst, describing Putin's psychological uh, makeup, basically. So he goes on to say that he's narcissistic, possibly due to childhood complexes as methods of overcoming them. 
Then he says that, uh, this is of Putin, rejection of family life, no information about his parents, secrecy around his children and his own personal life. This requires psychological compensatory mechanisms in search of close relationships. Such psychotype is prone to cross-dominance in relationships. Three, he says he tries to surround himself with the type of people whom he respected or feared in his childhood psychotype over whom he now has power. And number four, he has the strongest psychological resistance of personal responsibility for difficult decisions. Putin is psychologically incapable of refusing uh, with justification an offer from his closest circle. But this also leads to the conclusion that he does not guarantee anything to anyone by saying yes, because to guarantee is to take responsibility. He goes rather for you yourself are to blame if you failed. I've shortened that a little bit, but you know this is a pretty good analysis. I only imagine of of Putin, um, Eric. This is sort of standard doing in the situation. If you're an FSB officer of someone on the outside, pretty strange for them to be doing it about their own ruler. I mean, he's taken his life in his hands. Yeah, uh, you know, to do this kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So, Igor, do do we know who the audience was for this? This is somebody trying to communicate to the outside world, not necessarily an internal analysis of, of domestic security. It's not an intelligence yes. product. This is more of a letter to a friend kind of a thing. Right. So, the intended audience of this, uh, Wind of Change uh, sent even that first FSB letter, right, the big one from March 4th, and the subsequent ones, there have been now 19 over the past two months. The intended mm-hmm. audience, and this is not my assumption, okay? Like, I know for a fact that's who the audience is. It's the Western public and the Western politicians. But it, it was sent to Vladimir Osechkin, and he's based out of France, right? Right. It's for Vladimir to publish. Got it. Okay. So, right, there's people ask, like, well, why, why doesn't he just, like, contact the CIA or other uh, ICs around the world? Well, how do you know FSB is not in contact with other ICs? <laughs> mm. They are. The public I mean, deserves to know a lot of this stuff, too. That's the thing, right? And so the content in all this stuff, right, even, like, the psychoanalysis of Putin, it's just a little bit more of a curiosity, right? It's probably very much in line with what the ICs would have on Putin. But there's no reason this stuff should be secret. Yeah, but it's really interesting to see him being described as someone who will not take responsibility for anything in sort of this complex narcissistic disorder. I mean, that's certainly, um, you know, in terms of handing him on the way out of a war or handling him into the war, you'd want to be careful about him feeling like he's holding responsibility for any of this. You know, you go, in other words, all this contention about him needing an off-ramp, as they, people have been saying, might be actually quite suited to his personality type, that he does need some sort of victory at the end of all of this in order to find a way out of this. Well, that's not going to happen. But like, uh, with regards to uh, this last point, right? I remember there were some confusion. A lot of readers were trying to understand, like, what does this mean, this point number four? Mm-hmm. And to really, like, best way to provide an example. One, say, Shoigu goes up to Putin and says, I want to paint your house red. And some other guy like Bordnikov, whoever, goes up to Putin and says, I want to demolish your house. Putin is going to say, yes, yes. Mm. And then one guy demolishes Putin's house, and now Shoigu is stuck like, I couldn't paint your house blue Mm. because it's gone. And Putin is going to say, it's your fault. Mm. It's your responsibility, right? Right. So like any kind of contradictory agreements that he would make with his subordinates when they have an ask for him, 
it's everybody else's responsibility. He doesn't care that there is an actual contradiction in real life with him accepting all these different offers. Right. He's just saying yes to everybody. Interesting. That is really interesting. It's not only, I mean, that's very consistent with narcissism if it rises to the level of a personality disorder, but also when somebody in that kind of position who has that kind of pathological narcissistic tendency is under extraordinary pressure where there is no way to get what's known as narcissistic supply. If you have any familiar with uh, with narcissists, they, they don't need supply from everywhere, but they need something in their life telling them that they're superior and that they're in control and they're dominating other people. It doesn't have to be the whole world, but it can be, you know, it has to be at least, uh, you know, a few sources of this. And if they're robbed of that, they get very, very destabilized very quickly. And I would think that's quite a bit even more so if you are the dictator of uh, a large world power who has created this whole system and, you know, has succeeded in it. And now it's collapsing and it's going to keep collapsing. And there is no place to get any happy news. I yeah. guess you just have to demand happy news. <laughs> it's just, it comes from somewhere. These the last two notes on Igor, maybe you can explain what these meant to you and to other people who got this. He talks about the Tsar is not the Tsar, is a fact. Putin is not in charge anymore. He wants to be the Tsar, but this is a trap of illusions and a field of object manipulations. Prerequisites are established for this from all perspectives. What does that mean? So I think it relates to the other box. I mean, this is a fantastic infographic, by the way. I had no idea you had this and I brought up uh, using the US military footage from the Middle East. I had no idea you had this slide. So prepared. <laughs> uh, the left bottom, we should read that. There yeah. are serious discussions about how Putin is lately absorbed by finding mystical meanings from numerology to the shaman somewhere up north. Can't say anything concrete, doesn't fit into any analysis, <laughs> right? Actually, it fits into analysis, all right. Uh, you know, you get if you're looking for <laughs> positive vibes and they don't come anywhere else. Now you got to go point. to Bigfoot, man. You got to go to point. You know, the angels, yeah. and uh, you got a Rasputin. You need you get me a guy with a long beard and yeah. and robes and bring him yeah. in, sit him next to Shogu. God, that's I really interesting. It does sort of fit into that. Yeah. Right, and so the big statement here, right? The czar is not the czar. That is unambiguous. Putin is not in charge, right? We got to break it up down a little bit. Putin thinks he's in charge, mm. but he's been manipulated. And Wind of Change suspects that it's not like a, a bureaucratic type of manipulation that people can write this off to, to where, mm. you know, you got advisors and they're telling you what to do kind of thing. Not that. He means specifically... There's somebody in the shadows that is pulling the strings and manipulating Putin to make Putin believe that it's Putin's own will and wanting to do something when in fact, you know, he's being psychologically played to make him think that that's what he wants. Yeah, interesting. And well, so those somebody people. has that control over him. Right. Is he talking about the people in the Kremlin or the like the heads of these intelligence agencies, or is he talking about other forces? Is he talking about China? Is he talking I don't about? Think, there's no way it would be any of his subordinates. Yeah, in yes. my view. Yeah, I, I don't think it's it's, it's like Shoigu or anybody else. Yeah, it's yeah. not it. Yeah, I, I have the answer. Yeah, I know who it is. Ooh. Kanye West. I said it. <laughs> Fight me. Prove me wrong. <laughs> yeah. It so, is Kanye. <laughs> the, 
you know, there are people around him that are, there's a ton of candidates. Like, there's a guy that is like a carbon copy of Rasputin that's running around that's been very influential on Putin for a long time. He's an academic, like yeah. a crazy ideologue that oh. wants to restore the Soviet Union. I can't remember his name. Starts um, with a D. Dugan? Yeah, Alexander, Alexander Dugan. Dugan. Yeah, and he does have yeah. kind of the, he's, he's, yeah, got, he's got, got the look. He's got the look. And uh, what was he? After Trump won, it was like Sofia Nasha. And then it's like Washington, Nasha. It's like, well, that means Washington's ours. Sofia, Bo- oh, Sofia, Bulgaria. That's it. Chisinau, Moldova. So it's like Chisinau, Nasha. Sofia, Nasha. Washington, Nasha. That came out of Dugin. He's a creepy guy. I see some of his uh, stuff on uh, TV snippets we get sometimes. He's a pretty uh, out there thinker. Back to this original. But um, I mean, with that regard, he's right. You know, that's what happened. It's, well, it's, uh, it was right. We weren't happy about it here. You might have seen, if you go back through earlier episodes of this show, we did notice. I can only imagine. Yeah. There's so. two major threats that are contemplated in these letters that I think are really challenging everyone in the world right now. One is this potential nuclear threat that might show up. And the other one is famine. We're going to go back to famine in a second. But here's what he says about the nuclear threat. And I might be reading these a little out of order, but here we go. Governance always goes astray from mobilization. And just imagine you can sprint 100 meters, but try that in a marathon. And so with the Ukrainian question, we lunged as if we're going for a 100-meter sprint, but turned out we'd signed up for a marathon. And this is rather a brief overview of the current events. To offer further cynicism, I don't believe that Putin will press the red button to destroy the entire world. First, it's not one person that decides, and someone will refuse. There are lots of people there, and there is no single red button. Second, there are certain doubts that it actually functions properly. Experience shows that the more transparent the control procedures, the easier it is to identify problems, and where it's murky as to who controls what and how, but always reports full of bravado is where there are always problems. I'm not sure that the red button system functions according to the declared data. Besides, plutonium mm, fuel must mm, be changed mm, every mm, 10 years. Mm, mm, Third, mm. and this is the most disgusting and sad, I personally do not believe in Putin's will to sacrifice himself when he does not even allow his closest ministers and advisors to be in his vicinity. Whether it's due to his fear of COVID or possible assassination is irrelevant. If you're scared for the most trusted people to be near you, then how could you possibly choose to destroy yourself and those dearest to you? Conditional deadline is June. Conditional because in June, there'll be no economy left in Russia. There'll be Mm -hmm. nothing left. By and large, next week, there'll be a collapse in Russia to either of the two sides, simply because the situation cannot remain under current conditions. That's a pretty good analysis on why the nuclear threat isn't so much of a threat. Yeah, it's it's really good. Yeah. Um, Because that was March 4th. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fresh. Anybody refer to, well, what if... He did this with Trump. What if he wants to fire nukes and pushes the button? It's like, well, you mean get the day's codes that he received, you know, that morning with a nuclear football he has on his person at all times for that 24 hour period that he would then uh, use the football, which is actually just a phone back to the Pentagon to call Stratcom and then engage an operational plan. It's not a button. It's, you know, nuclear missiles turns out quite complicated. And yeah, if you don't swap the fuel out, you know, you got a problem with things going places. And to loop this into what we were just talking about, where only good news goes up, that doesn't, you know, if you can't take a little bad news or something, what if it's like, you know, our readiness and lethality has been compromised in our strategic 
nuclear missile arsenal. If you're not allowed to say that, then it's hard to get some extra budget and manpower in to make sure your stuff works. Right. So they might not work. The nuclear arsenal might not work. May fuel may not have been replaced. Who knows what it is? It may not work. There was a scandal just recently, wasn't there, Igor, about uh, a sort of a corruption scheme inside the military where another reason maybe they're not getting a full picture of what they have on the ground is because a lot of the budget has been siphoned away by corrupt leaders, which wouldn't surprise one, but it's, it seems like a pretty good idea of what might be happening. Yeah, so just with uh, Shoigu... So this is something that Vladimir published with his sources, and I translated very concrete, specific information. There's a person that defected from Russia that Vladimir had been hiding in France. Now he could finally come out to the public. Vladimir published a hours-long interview with him that was recorded last year, but he could only publish it recently. And this is a person that used to be in the Russian security services who headed one of the shell companies that Shoigu and his deputy Ivanov and another guy, the older guy, they're his deputies in the Ministry of Defense. They use these shell companies to uh, steal in excess of three trillion rubles. Hmm. Wow. So that is, you know, 38 billion at the current exchange rate, $38 billion. Yeah. So over span of some time, over span of several years, maybe more, right? Shoigu has been around since 91. (laughs) <laughs> I think so that is not a singular instance right mm. that kind of theft and corruption happens at every level so imagine if Shoigu is stealing with a couple of his deputies like 30-40 billion dollars out of the Russian budget over several years that kind of theft happens at every single level to where nothing gets done actually at the very bottom right and it might not even be equipment to do anything with because you basically are mm-hmm stealing so much and the equipment might not work and so maybe there's a good reason why uh so much of the necessary supplies that the russian military needed in ukraine just never showed up and why they had so much difficulty in those early days and still are today so let's take nuclear off the table but the uh the threat of famine is actually a very real threat and he talks about it in a couple of letters at first paragraph i read you that from that first letter is one place but then later on he talks about another twist to it so in addition to there being a potential famine around the world because so much of the grain comes from russia and ukraine he is also suggesting this is the wind of change is suggesting that it could be used by putin as a sort of a blackmail scheme for the rest of the world and this is from a later letter but he says using migrants for blackmail and the unexpected flip side of the coin As I wrote earlier, the main bet in the protracted war with the Western world is the use of migrants as blackmail against the West. By knocking out Ukraine's grain exports and refusing to export potash fertilizers, Russia effectively launches a scenario of a hunger riots and widespread migration from developing countries. In theory, the window of opportunity for blackmail is as follows. Give them more grain to countries, reduce the flow of migrants naturally. All this could be in response to mutual concessions from the West. But already we are facing opposition from the West. Almost all developing countries have taken the neutral position in the war with Ukraine. In the current geopolitical situation, this can be credited to Russia. But such a game of hunger and Ukraine's fuel reserves and grain exports logistics are now being destroyed very systematically and precisely can turn developing countries against us much earlier than we reach the point of possible blackmail. (laughs) And that the West is actively conducting this explanatory work right now. And in fact, 
Just today, in his press conference today, Biden spoke about the threat to the world of famine. And uh, because of the Ukraine and Russian war there, he says there are 20 million tons of grain in storage in Ukraine right now. That that will increase food shortages around the world. As the Smolder is saying, it could increase migration and ultimately could result in this Putin blackmail. So it's an interesting scenario that he's painting there. Almost no one thinks that hunger isn't going to be an issue. It seems like that famine issue is, is now upon us. I know you took this, you disputed some of this early in his earlier letters. Igor, do you still feel the same way about the famine? Well, he said global famine, right? I think that's a little, I'm not an expert, right? I'm a race car driver, but <laughs> it's a little far-fetched in my view. I do think that there are obviously gonna be disruptions especially with fertilizers and grain. So fertilizers, Russia is a big fertilizer exporter even to the US. So there will be consequences to the global food supply. But when you take grain, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Russia and Ukraine together are responsible for maybe 25% of grain production worldwide. I think so. It could right. be size it's 50, not, but, but it's a lot. I, yeah, I don't think it's anywhere close to 50. Okay. I think it was about a quarter. And so, yes, there's going to be increase in food prices. There's going to be look search for alternatives, alternative supply chains, alternative foods. I mean, a lot of the developing world really relies much more on things like rice rather than bread. And I think there could be potentially, there's gonna be some suffering, but it's not gonna be a global famine, in my view at least. Eric, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be disruptive. You know, it's, it's really gonna disrupt the, the sanctions there, are gonna disrupt Chinese agriculture, because it's not just that they're not gonna give us potash and uh, from our friend Dmitry Rybovlev, but you know, China will end up getting sanctioned similarly if it doesn't keep the regime isolated. They depend very heavily on fertilizer from Russia. So that could affect, you know, uh, crop yields in China, which is a country that is very sensitive to that kind of thing. Like, you know, when you have yeah. 1.2 billion people, you know, you're only so many missed meals away from chaos on a very big scale there. We should you know, talk a little uh, bit more about China in a bit, because I think it is really interesting. But before we leave this, you know, the other factor here is just inflation. So just as we're looking at, you know, an election that is going to be fought pretty much on this inflation issue, Putin here has a lever by extending the war or just disrupting the distribution of grain and other supplies from Ukraine. He might even be able to, you know, keep inflation high in the United States and elsewhere in the world as a sort of a rebuttal against the sanctions. I think that's a real possibility that Biden was uh, highlighting for people today that there are, you know, Putin is a factor in fuel for sure. But Putin is also a factor in food prices. And so this war is having an impact on people's pocketbooks here in the United States. And, you know, just blaming Biden for all of this is not the right way to go. Uh, clearly, there are global forces beyond his control here, including this massive war that will drive up prices in the United oh, States oh, and lead to shortages and migration. Let us not leave out the role of price gouging under mm -hmm. this narrative, though. Right. Because you have the Longshoremen's Union and the truckers who have been slowing down supply chains for multiple reasons. Let's not forget, you know, there's also a huge crackdown on drugs and organized crime, mm -hmm. particularly under Biden and Merrick Garland. And there's a bunch of people who are in the logistics businesses who might, in addition to their sacks of grain, might be moving cocaine and children as well. And they would like to go back to a, a Trump-based world order. 
and no. the mobsters would you know yeah, uh, i think you're right i think that this price gouging is a huge factor the fixing around this these food prices massive issue for people and those are the kind of factors that you know people don't understand and they get to the uh the supermarket aisle and then try to figure out what their you know their bread is so expensive but in reality there are so many forces that go into that which are just you know beyond the control of any government but certainly beyond the control of any consumer We've got a little bit of time, unfortunately. I thought this was going to go quickly, but boy, has it gone quickly. I want to talk about two other things, and one is the future of Putin directly, Igor. In these letters, you know, it certainly seems like the world is out to get Vladimir Putin, but also internally. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of tension inside the Kremlin as different forces are fighting against each other, each trying to blame each other for things. But on the way, there's a real potential that Putin is going to you know, to be have to be suffering a palace coup of some sort, because, you know, he started the war that no one really understands why. Putin really, he has no way out. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have an off ramp and he will not have an off ramp. Mm-hmm. The only people that can do anything about Putin at the end of the day is the Russian people. Mm-hmm. I don't just mean like Russian, like regular babushkas and civilians. I mean, Russian people inclusive of Everybody, including his mafia, the oligarchs, including the military command, the intelligence security services, right? Everybody, overall, the entire Russian people in that sense. There are, he's stuck right now. So, for example, you saw, there was a lot of talk that was, in my opinion, it was completely nonsensical. That Putin was going to announce general mobilization on May 9th. Mm. Of course, it didn't happen. It can't happen, not because Russia doesn't have enough weapons. Like, they don't care about that. They will end up with enough weapons anyway. They can bring out stuff from the 70s, whatever. Like, the military command in Russia doesn't care about equipping the soldiers. But if you have hundreds of thousands of bodies, they will still do plenty of damage. And if half of them die, they don't care either, as far as Putin is concerned. That's not a reason not to call for general mobilization. The big reason not to call for general mobilization is because that is going to drastically accelerate the, his overthrow. <laughs> mm. There is going to be a no way out situation at that point. Mm. So you will notice there's a lot of, so far it's very disorganized, but I think with time it's going to get better and better. Inside Russia, all this conscription office is getting burned down all over the I country. I didn't notice that. Yeah, that's interesting. Ooh. I've been noticing you've been pointing out all these other fires taking place at, at, yeah. at, at, uh, at so plants that produce weapons. and Yeah, th- I mean, that is not like, you know, Ukrainian James Bond's doing that stuff. Right. That is the Russian doing it inside who don't want this world. And so that Putin built for them. And... With regards to conscription offices, something that should be pretty insightful is there's a specific purpose for it, mm-hmm. which is, and you'll see in these videos, it's young guys doing it, right? It's the local guys. It's not some kind of organized attempt by the foreign intelligence services like the FSB always likes to blame, place blame on. Mm-hmm. These are Russian kids, Russian guys that live there. They're burning down their own conscription offices because it's a third world country in that they don't have a lot of this information and the databases in electronic form. Mm, so the files are paper. Mm. So if they burn down these conscription offices, you can't call for general mobilization. 
because you don't know who to call. Granted, you will be able to rebuild that list in like uh, over time. Mm-hmm. But this is what will cause oh, that's a, interesting delay. Yeah, that is interesting. This is right, and this is an insight. And again, this stuff is public. I'm, obviously, this is a public <laughs> interview we're doing. Uh, just the other day, I was talking to a person who was it, conscripted into the GRU Spetsnaz. Mm. He, which is great. I didn't even know that. Yeah. So they conscript like very athletic, healthy, intelligent men into the GRU Spetsnaz. Wow. So it's not a contract. It's not professionals. Wow. He was conscripted into the GRU Spetsnaz over a decade ago when he was younger. He's the one that told me about this purpose of the conscription offices getting burned down around the country. Because mm-hmm. I didn't think of that either. It makes sense. You go like, duh. Yes, of course. <laughs> But he is against this war. He is against the Putin fascist regime. He's against all of this. He's another Russian patriot. He wants Russia to succeed as a country. He wants the Russian people to succeed as a society. There are a lot of people like that. Right now, they're still in those early stages to where he doesn't know what he can do to help, but he's ready to do anything. I asked him, like, because he's been outspoken about it. Mm-hmm. He's been public about it. I'm not going to mention his name here because it might be actually seen, but he has been public. Right. So I asked him, That's like, aren't you scared that you're going to get captured? Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, if it happens, it happens, but I can't just keep silent, can I? So, Igor, are you familiar with a, a man named uh, Alexander Litvinenko? I am familiar as far as what's been in the news yes so you know he's most famous for how he died with polonium tea but he was you know one of the the top managers at the fsb and he defected in about 2006 i believe and uh did something i think you know if the story is what it's been reported to be hopefully there'll be statues of him in Russia and maybe even elsewhere, because apparently he was the one who went to both the United Kingdom's intelligence services and Spain's. So like MI6, MI5 and CNI in, in Spain, because you've got the city of London, you've got Barcelona, which has you know major uh, hubs of the Russian mafia and other corruption. He went to UK and Spain and, and said at great risk to his own life. And he, you know, his absence would be noted, of course. Uh, and he's told Western analysts, we're winning. I'm here because we are winning against you. I know because I know how you guys are thinking about us. And we had some of your Intel products get leaked to us occasionally. You don't get it. Mm. There is no difference between our state, our mafia, and our spy services. And you've got your spy guys, your spy catchers looking for spies and your organized crime guys looking for mobsters, and we are cleaning your clocks. We are beating you everywhere to the point that it scares me because I know some of the guys I work for, you know, I don't want us to win with this crew. And Mm -hmm. I think he was a Russian patriot. I think he was afraid of that group winning. I don't think he loved the UK or loved Spain and, Mm -hmm. you know, wanted the United States to take over the world or anything. I think he was happy, you know, but he's like, if the story is true, it seems like he saw to the future 
And it's like, yeah, we're winning now, but either we win entirely and the world goes to hell or this, you know, we're so aggressive and we get caught and the world will turn against us. And I think that's the scenario we're living in now. Yeah, look at what's happened around the world, around all these Western nations since Litvinenko died. Mm. I mean, every single country has been, there's going to be just golden examples of great successes by the Kremlin, by Putin's mafia of subverting all of these democracies. Yeah. Yep. Just in the past 10 years. Yeah. We're still and, in it today. And we've been just sleeping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a very good point that we're still very much in the thick of this. And the Litvinenko thing is, of course, he was responsible for telling the world about the mob and the alliance uh, between Putin and the mob or the infiltration either way of the Russian government into the mob or the other way around. Whatever it is, it's became a mafia state. No, no it's just it's it's very simple, right? It's mm-hmm. like you can't say this is why it just really ticks me off when I hear journalist talk say President Putin. Mm-hmm. Like Russia is a mafia state, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. It is the mafia that happens to run the largest landmass nation mm-hmm. in the world with the most natural resources trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars worth of natural resources in the ground mm-hmm. it's run by mafia it operates like mafia, like mafia. it's literally yeah. no different than like what if the gambinos or somebody ended up taking control of the U.S. government. Yep. Like, just try to imagine what that world might be like. I think we did that's for four Russia years. We, we had it for four years. That's, that's, <laughs> that's Genovese. Yeah. That's different. <laughs> but, you know, under Trump, I was just saying. You know, Not even close, though. You can't yeah. make those parallels, even as a joke, I think. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I don't say it as a joke. I do think that uh, Trump is very aligned to the Russian mob, and I think that's... Uh, no, I get that, yeah. but I'm saying, like, that is still a false parallel... Yes, with regards to what Putin's mafia is like in terms of what they do and how they yes. govern. Yes, of course, they're much more entrenched than uh, in the United States but, one. Go ahead. And their uh, control was so, you know, I take exactly what you're saying, Igor, but the frightening nature of, some, you know, a mafia family that, or, you know, a mafia syndicate that is not meant to run things that big, but just, you know, we steal stuff, we get the money, we beat you up if you come after us. I mean, it's not yeah. sophisticated, you know. But that's how the Russia has been run under yeah. Putin. Yeah, uh, it it's been run like this since '91, right? And so, like mm-hmm. Trump, of course, he wanted this playbook. Mm-hmm. He wanted to steal this exact playbook for himself to run America. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had Manafort on for a reason. <laughs> you know? Exactly, and you see right? the blackmail thing. Right. This whole idea of blackmailing the world for grain and migration, I mean, that's a typical mob move. Only the mob would do something like that. It's, you know, it's, it's devoid of any morality. You mentioned 1991, and I think it's a good place to end it. This was the former president of uh, Russia, Yeltsin. Um, this is 1991, am I right? I might be wrong. This was the coup, wasn't it? I hope it's the right picture for the right time. I think this was the coup that happened then. It was known as the August coup, and it's when Yeltsin took power in Russia, if I'm not mistaken. Does anyone know the Russian history better than I do? Am I wrong here? Because I'm going to defer to Igor. Uh, on this. Uh, I don't know if any of us do. Okay, so I'll just apologize for putting up this slide. But I, just, <laughs> but I will say this. I, is what, I was just thought it's a good place to end. You know, we're talking about a palace coup and, and the potential for one. And I do think that you know, looking at all these forces, as you've so brilliantly done in all your translations, there is a lot to be said around the internal and domestic pressure around Vladimir Putin. That you know, just because they tell us in the news that opinion polls are you know soaring and he's incredibly popular in Russia doesn't mean he's secure in his role, that there is definitely 
deadly forces, as we've seen those that are, you know, burning factories or conscription offices, uh, or those people who are showing up in the news with signs, or yesterday were hacking the television program guides in Russia. Those people are all a small sample of the many, many, many people in Russia who are opposed to Vladimir Putin and very much opposed to this war. And that the conditions on the ground for him are not so favorable that he can do anything. He has to do things within the constraints of a public that is really unhappy with this war, that is receiving all these dead bodies that are coming out of Ukraine, that is unhappy with the whole intention of this war, in addition to all these security forces and these intelligence apparatus that he has that are, you know, confining him. I mean, they really don't want him to succeed in what he's doing. So you've got, uh, you know, a lot of pressures internally that could mean a very different end to the story than the one we're talking about, which is, you know, just Ukraine winning here. It could also see Putin losing and leaving and losing power and being forced out of power, because that's a real possibility here. I think it's an inevitability at this point. I think there's no way that Putin can remain in power. You'll see, you know, there's some sort of guiding lights, right? Some North Stars to use mm -hmm. as you observe uh, the events around the world that are happening, especially in Russia and Ukraine. You will notice, just keep in your mind, everything that Putin is doing and saying, he's doing it because he's trying to mitigate and minimize the risk of getting overthrown. That's mm -hmm. been going on for several weeks now. Right. That's a very good assumption to go off of. That's why he didn't call general mobilization. Right. It was obvious he wouldn't because another uh, very good thing to keep in mind, okay? I still get a lot of direct messages on Twitter from people that say they can't sleep at night. They want some kind of reassurance from me. Mm. <laughs> They're looking for somebody to reassure them that there's not going to be an end to the world through a nuclear war. Those people should be sleeping like babies, no matter where you are in the world, because nobody serious in any of our intelligence communities, in our military, at the higher levels of power, has any concern for that. That stuff is under control. There is not going to be a nuclear war. So stop it might worrying be nuclear. about it. There might be some localized nuclear I mean, that's DNI, uh, Avril Haines today in front of Congress today, again, repeated that there is a possibility yeah. that something like that could happen. I mean, it's a, I don't want to just be unfair with the audience. We can't rule it out. It, it might not be super likely, but it's if he she said in her words, if he feels like he's losing the war, then a nuclear possibility is a real possibility. And that's got to be true. I mean. It's, we just don't know. I don't I think we, it is. Yeah. I, I don't it's think that's good. I, 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 I like your version <laughs> of events better. Trust me. But. If you get into the details of it, yeah. it's just not a possibility. That's yeah. not how these levers get pulled. There's mm -hmm. a lot behind the scenes that happen. And they, I don't think, I think like with that regard, I think wind of change, I mean, he can be wrong too, right? Like there's a person that he offers a lot of facts, but he also offers his opinions in these emails. He's a real person. Yeah. With regards to the nuclear stuff, there isn't like throwing just throwing a, some kind of a nuclear bomb just on Ukraine just for shits and giggles, right? It's not going to accomplish anything, which he said it's not going to accomplish anything. The world, the West, they have specific protocols for that. Like yep. basically, if Russia tries that, even if it's just localized in Ukraine, yeah. like on Kiev or whatever, yeah. Russia is going to get wiped very hard, very fast. And mm -hmm. those bombs probably won't even reach Ukraine. You know, so yeah. again, right. it's so far from any kind of world war. If there's even an attempt at a, a localized strike, that's going to be the end of Putin very fast.
Yeah, and we would know. And they know time. this stuff. As you point out, you, they, they we would know. They know this stuff. Yeah. You know? And the analysts know this, and, you know, they're not being emotional here. They're looking at, I mean, yeah. I think, by the way, you are a better intelligence analyst than I am at driving 180 miles an hour. So, you know, <laughs> I, and I understand you're coming just as a concerned citizen, but, uh, you know, hats off. You, We could fit you in a cubicle somewhere. Um, <laughs> I know it's a it's a very glamorous offer. I know, um, compa- <laughs> compared to your current environs, but I think this is just if I put purely my analytical hat on, this seems a very coherent analysis mm-hmm. from everybody involved. And uh, yeah, I think I Putin's days are numbered, and he knows it, and it's going to get disreputable. And hopefully, our you know the various intelligence communities and other diplomatic services are already working with uh, Russia's actual patriots. And hopefully, when this threat is from these mobsters and madmen are are mitigated, that uh, we can get back to a world brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And well uh, supporting each other. Uh, we have to leave it there because we are taking a little bit more time than we expected to tonight. But uh, Igor, everyone should check out your uh, feed because it is full of really important information. It's a constant update of what's going on from inside. Tell people where they can find you on Twitter. So on Twitter, it's just my full name, Igor Sushko. Okay. Same uh, exact for my website, right? You can go to igorsushko.com. You can read all the FSB letters in full in article form instead of just Twitter threads. Yeah. So They're great, there, by the way. There's They're a really lot of ways. Re- yeah. It's good reading. There's a lot in there. I mean, boy. It's a lot of facts and details. You really will enjoy if you like these kind of things. This is, uh, you know, it's great to mine it and great to learn. And thank you, Igor, thank you so much for being here tonight. Hopefully we'll have you back again so we can discuss more of these. It is remarkable that we're able to get this insight into the FSB. Eric, any last thoughts from you before we leave? World peace, man. World peace. World peace. Hopefully we'll get there. Eric can be found at Eric Garland on Twitter and also at the Game Theory Podcast. Thank you very much for being here tonight. And thanks to our uh, patrons for supporting us. And if you want to be a patron, you can join us at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Every cent goes to making these shows that hopefully make the world uh, better informed about what's going on. Have a good night, everybody. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative. and a coup to a war in Ukraine. At Narrative, we've been telling you the truth about Putin and Xi since 2016. 
narrative. It's where truth lives.